You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Ken Mosesian. He's CEO of Mosesian Strategies. We're going to talk to him a little bit about the work he does with leaders, helping them figure out how to kind of get to the next level by taking themselves to the next level. I find so much of business growth is really about leadership growth. And so I'm excited to have this conversation with Ken. Ken spent a lot of time looking at the whole question of leadership and working with leaders that are running businesses on how to elevate themselves so they can elevate the business. So it should be an interesting and fun conversation. I love people who are working on leadership in this space. It's a it's a great one. I think it's going to be really great takeaways for anyone in service based companies. This is just a double doubly hard thing to do because scaling your company is about scaling the people, and you got to scale yourself. So, with all that, Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, and thanks for the opportunity to ch- chat with your audience. Yeah. So let's do background first. Sure. How did you get into this space? What was the story? How have you kind of built this practice of looking at leadership? Why has leadership become important to you? Give us the background. Sure. It's a really circuitous path that I took. And as I think back on it, the event that really influenced me most was uh, working in a hospital emergency department as an emergency medical technician. Mm-hmm. It's where I really gained a, a solid appreciation for what it means to work as a team, to have a leader that you trust and respect, and how taken together we could all set each other up for success. And I remember in particular one evening on a Friday night hearing a thud behind me and knowing exactly what was happening. I turned around and there's a guy bleeding out with stab wounds. It was the beginning of the knife and gun club, as we called it, for the weekend. And it was myself, a physician and a nurse, just all going into action at the same time. The communication was impeccable. The fact that we knew our jobs inside and out was supremely important, but we also knew each other's jobs. We also had an appreciation for, and at least a comprehensive basic understanding of what the other person was doing. And we were united by a common goal to save this kid's life. And we were dedicated to that and laser focused on that. And that one experience stays with me. And when I think back to the whole of those two years that I spent there in the ER, I think how many times that teamwork came together mm. to save lives. Yeah. And uh, and that's really the genesis. Yeah, that sort of intense emergency room, I got to save a life kind of thing, certainly clarifies things or, or focuses people really yeah. sharply. How do you take some of those lessons out of those kind of situations and apply them to, you know, kind of the less stressful or less, there isn't necessarily an immediate life on the line, you know, but you got to get the work done. Like, how do you create 
leadership? How do you create that kind of intensity and focus in kind of a day-to-day kind of situation? Sure. So the, the translation of those things really started coming into focus a few years back when I was talking to owner, founder, CEOs and asking them what their biggest challenge was. And these were people who had started companies and experienced just a tremendous amount of growth over a relatively short period of time. And they all mentioned the same thing, that difficulty that they had in letting go of the day-to-day, of letting go of daily operations and just focusing on the future where they could create what's next for the company. And so some of the things that I took out of that experience in the ER were the ability of a leader to recognize that Mm. in order for growth to happen, he had to be able or she had to be able to rely on the people that were working with them. And in order to do that, those people had to know the parameters for what they were allowed to do. And they also had to be able to connect really clearly the overall vision to the specific work that they were doing to give meaning to their work on an individual basis. And so in my conversations with leaders, we talk about, number one, do you have a desire to actually delegate? Are you in that place now where you can let go and you want to let go and you're willing to let go? Mm. Because all of that needs to be in place before we can talk about any kind of training. We can train teams from now until the end of time. But if the CEO is ultimately not willing to let go of an iron-fisted grip on those day-to-day operations, it's just not going to matter. So it really starts with a willingness at the CEO level. How do you know that's really the case? Because I think it's easy for someone to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing, right? But then not, <laughs> then not do it. Is there yeah. anything that, are there any tells, you know, telltales that you've seen in terms of that discussion that you have with leaders to really test or really understand if they are going to behave that way? I mean, you know, people will say they'll do lots of things and then do things completely different. Or do you just need to try it? Like, do you need to kind of, yeah, I mean, they'll, they're going to say they're going to do it and then you need to, you know, experiment or you need to run, or, you know, attempt it and then see what actually happens? Or what are some insights you've developed around this? Sure. This follows my philosophy of as soon as you get an answer, then memorialize it. Mm -hmm. Let's actually take that now and translate it from the theoretical into the practical. So by way of example, back in the day pre-COVID when we could actually meet in person, Uh my favorite technique was in front of a whiteboard to say, that's fantastic. It's so great to hear, Mr. Ms. CEO, that you're Mm -hmm. willing to let go. Let's talk about some of the things that are on your plate that you are today willing to assign (laughs) out to your team. Let's just go make that list and then we'll talk about who on the team is best equipped to handle them, if there's any training that they're going to need, who's going to do the training and what the timeline is. So basically, let's put together a timeline, deliverables, the person responsible and get this into action now. Mm -hmm. And they either would or there would be a slew of excuses that would flow. It couldn't happen. That to me was the biggest tell right there. Yeah. So if they if they weren't even willing to do it on paper, <laughs> they yeah, were probably very not, not willing to do <laughs> it on. And or I guess do you find that you know once you kind of get the plan put on the whiteboard or put it down on paper, that generally people follow through with it, or do you find that there's there is a gap between okay, well we've got the plan and then going to execute on this, you know, things that get tripped up or you know resistant that, that comes up. Once it's on. Uh, on the whiteboard, on on paper, on a screen, whatever. Once the plan is established, I've never had somebody backtrack on it. I think that's because once they put their word out there, and it's not yeah. just between the two of us anymore, once it actually gets like, okay, this is it, we're moving forward, they don't want to be seen as not being a person of their word. That's my guess. 
Yeah. And, and I, I certainly, like one of the things I do with teams, with leaders in these kind of scenarios is I, you know, we make it public. <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, it gets disseminated, it gets, you know, put in people's hands, it gets announced, you know, and once you have that kind of announcement, then now there's public accountability to executing on it. Do you find, this may be subtle, but do you find a difference between if you're kind of writing the plan on the whiteboard versus if you have them write the plan on the whiteboard? It is subtle, but I think it's really important. Oftentimes I'll have them speak it so they don't have to worry about like how to phrase it or organize it. I want them to just be able to be a full participant. But once that's done, they're the one who then communicates it out to yeah. the team. Yeah. And that to me is the most important piece because as you said, once it's made public, and to my earlier point, once it's made public by them, then it's their word that's now been given. Yeah, yeah. And for those folks that go through that uh, resistance or, or are unable to kind of articulate the plan or willingness to kind of put a plan down like that, what's going on? Do you see any patterns? Do you see any kind of common themes that come up in terms of what gets in people's way in terms of making those decisions or, or even contemplating that process? Yeah, I think it goes back to our basic fear and survival instinct, just as human beings, our DNA coding for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do a whole section on the 35,000 years ago when we started <laughs> roaming the earth in, in uh, tribes thing. But the bottom line is we default to that. And when you're in that space of fear, the only thing you think about is how to survive it. And for people who have been surviving, if the company's doing well, if it's doing more than surviving, if it's doing well, I think there is that notion of if I alter something, I take a risk that may result in everything that I've built up falling apart. Yeah. And I had one CEO tell me that the logical extension of that thinking when he actually allowed himself to go down that path was him alone without his wife and kids homeless under an overpass. Yeah. Like literally, that's yeah. where his mind went. It is this just kind of that psychological tendency that we have to loss aversion. Like we're much more worried about losing something we have than the benefit of gaining something we don't. It is. And I think the, the bottom line is that really serves entrepreneurs well in so many ways yeah. because it, it helps you to mitigate against what might go wrong so that you can build something. And most entrepreneurs also have a high tolerance for that kind of risk because they know that failure is a great teacher. Yeah. But when I see people who have built companies are doing well and and are faced with the opportunity for growth, what's on the line is a lot more than starting out just sitting at your desk with you. Now there's 10, 20, 50, 100 employees that are relying on you for their livelihood. Yeah. And I think they sincerely, I mean this in the best way too, they take that responsibility heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually matters to most of them. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that that you can or is it your goal or is it is the objective to work with those folks to kind of overcome those things? Or from your point of view, it's kind of a look, if, if you're not ready, you're not ready. And you're going to focus on other people that are ready or, you know, eventually these people come around or they're not likely to come around. I mean, I guess how do you kind of diagnose the situation and choose your kind of intervention or your engagement, like who you choose to work with and how you choose to work with them? Yeah. So it's, it's been my experience that the people that come to me and most all of this is word of mouth. Uh, most all the people that come to me come to me because somebody else said, hey, my company was where yours is. 
and Ken was really able to help me let go and move forward. Yeah. I've had one person that really struggled with that notion of letting go, but she kept emphasizing that it was her desire. And so we worked together for a few months just coaching through what was going on with the intent of getting to, yes, let's move forward or no, let's not. Yeah. And she got to a point where she understood that by not delegating things out, not only was she preventing her company, which was poised to grow tremendously, she was preventing that from happening. She was depriving her team mm -hmm. from growing themselves. And they were smart, willing, eager to grow. But without that delegation happening from her, it wasn't going to happen. And that was the thing that actually turned the switch for her, was knowing that she could help her team grow themselves by allowing herself to let go of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's just almost kind of a reframe on that in terms of, you know, you're worried that the risk of growth could be, uh, you know, under a bridge, homeless with no family, you know, but you also add to that, well, if, and if you don't grow, <laughs> you could right. be in that same spot too, right? Because <laughs> all your people are not going to be happy. They're going to leave. You're going to lose your talent. Your business is going to suffer, you know. You know, so you could kind of almost paint this as, you know, uh, jujitsu on, on the visioning here to help them see, look, there's downsides of not growing. And I, and I think that's one thing that I think it's, it's I often find in working with leaders is that they've only kind of looked at the downside of growing and they haven't looked at the downside of not growing. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and I think in that, uh, it's a great term you bring up in terms of, of how to frame things, because that to me is the key to moving through all of this. It's like, what kind of frame are you going to establish in which the conversation can happen? And the frame that I talk, talk about in terms of how things usually are is that you have trained your team to take orders and to execute. Mm. And they're doing that really well. But you're at a point now where you cannot be the single point of focus that's distributing that. And the new frame that we have to create is for them to think critically and then take action on their own. And yeah. your job is to actually establish the parameters within which they can operate so they have a degree of safety within that critical thinking. And that's an interesting because I think a lot of, well, you definitely have folks that are not willing to give up control. You have a bit of a pendulum swing on the other side of, you know, people that go into this mode and they just give up all control. Right. <laughs> kind of like, okay, well, I'll let them figure it out. And people are kind of at sea. I mean, what give us a kind of a more detail around this balance or this, you know, frame that you've constructed, which is you don't want to give up all control, but how do you decide what control to give up? What do you need to maintain? Like, uh, give us more details on how you kind of the sort of the approach you help your leaders develop in this new way of working. Sure. So I talk about highest and best use of time and it sounds cliche because it's accurate. And, <laughs> um, it's like there's a reason it's a cliche. Yeah, exactly. it, it's actually true. And so we sit down and we it's it's so old fashioned. It's like, let's get out a pad and pen uh -huh. and make a list all the stuff you do. And then we talk about what are the things that actually move the needle. And this goes to that 80-20 principle, the one thing. You know, what action can you take that moves the needle the furthest? This isn't about you working harder or longer, coming home more exhausted or ignoring your wife or your husband or your kids and somehow seeing that as a badge of honor. This is about us being really smart yeah. and looking at those things that you can do that are going to move the needle the furthest. Those are the things we want to keep on your plate. Mm -hmm. Then let's take a look at the other things. Let's do an assessment of the skill set that your staff has. Let's talk about if you need to do any training or if you need to do any hiring or reshuffling. And then let's distribute that out. And then let's talk about a reporting structure back to you 
not from everybody, but from a couple of people so that you know that you're able to keep informed of what's happening without having to live in the day to day. And that structure seems to work really well. It takes a bit of time to flesh it out, to test it, to see how it goes, but it ultimately works really well. And we approach it from this sort of three-tiered perspective. And one is, as the CEO, you have to have a clear vision for the company. You also have to be able to communicate to your team how they play an integral role in the fulfillment of that vision. And then, as I just said, you've got to give them the parameters within which they can operate safely think critically and act, knowing that some of those actions are going to fail, but that those failures are great learning opportunities for them to advance. And how, how do you make sure that those opportunities, you, you actually learn from those opportunities? Because I think, you know, we, there's a lot of kind of, you know, fail fast, fail early, I mean, a lot of kind of like pro failure. But I think that only works if you've actually taken the learning, if you've actually done the learning from it. How do you make sure that you do get that kind of benefit of the learning from these failures? That we can't just move on. And so there's always a debrief and it's formalized. And so the person who executed something that didn't work is expected to take some time, sit down and write out what happened, the thought process that went into it, what went wrong, what could have been done to mitigate against it, the key lessons out of that, and then to distribute that out to everyone yeah. so that everyone can learn from it. And you know, I, I, I think that that whole critical thinking process is just so important. And again, there's, there's techniques in which we can teach people how to think critically, how to assess information, how to conduct small-scale tests to see if it's viable or not, how to seek counsel from others who may have more wisdom or experience around it before ultimately implementing it. But it's that process initially, uh, the actual execution, knowing that there may be a failure, but then it's that assessment of it, the, the post-mortem, if you will, and the full distribution of what happened and the key lessons that we learned. Yeah, I'm curious if, if there's sort of common or you know great leaders from your point of view share really specific kind of thinking or strategies or mindsets and how much you find that you know there's lots of different kinds of leaders and they can be quite different but they're all very effective in different ways and I'm just kind of curious what you're seeing in terms of similarities between all great leaders and if how how diverse you think you know they end up being from from your experience yeah it's interesting there's a great deal of diversity I think there's there's two or three qualities that stand out to me every time and the first one is actually humility and not sort of that fake, oh, no, 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 I'm not that great kind of humility. <laughs> tell me more. Uh, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> Could you say it again? Put it in writing, please. Yeah. It's not that. It is the humility that says, man, what a, what a lucky life I'm living. I'm living my dream. I'm building up an amazing company. I'm helping other people live a freer life that then they might otherwise be living. Um, mm -hmm. This is extraordinary. And also to be able to say, when something goes wrong that was their fault, it's mm -hmm. like, I screwed up. Yeah. It's that kind of humility. And to be able to say, this was my mistake. Here's my key learning out of this. And, uh, and, and now let's move forward with this in mind and, and correct course and, and do better. And so there's that, that sense of true humility. The second one right up there, I think they're co-equal, is integrity. Mm -hmm. And I think it is utterly impossible to be a great leader without integrity. Well, and tell, tell us about what you, your kind of definition of integrity. Sure. Just I, I, the term gets thrown around a lot, and I find that yeah. 
Uh, it, it can it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Yeah. How do you kind of define integrity from a leadership point of view? So the classic first definition is the quality of being honest, which is absolutely a part of it. I love definition number two, though, if you scan down Merriam-Webster yeah. to the second one, and that is the quality of being whole and complete. Mm. And why that matters is that if you are whole and complete, it means you are aligned and aligned with what? Well, you're aligned with the truth. You're aligned with your values, that absolute irreducible minimum core that constitutes who you are and that you take into your business. And so if you come at integrity from that perspective of integral, of being whole, of being complete, and you add to that the assumption that you are telling the truth, then I think that combined with a humble spirit just sets you head and shoulders above most. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it implies that in order to kind of do really good work as a leader, you really kind of need to know yourself pretty well. (laughs) And I'm not not sure many people do. (laughs) I mean, I certainly have met leaders who have struggled with those. I think people in general struggle. But you talk about core values, like how I'm curious how you have found successful leaders have kind of discovered those core values and, you know, articulated them in a a way that actually helped them make some of those decisions and, and find that alignment, this internal alignment. I asked him to think back to occasions in their lives or the lives of people around them who they respect and to recall those specific events and then tell me about why those events were meaningful. Mm-hmm. Like what about that meant something to you? And you know, I, I think back to Yosemite. Uh, it's a, a park in California most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to go, my family, my, my sister, my dad, mom, myself used to go every year in the spring and in the fall. And beautiful mountains, Half Dome is there and, and other beautiful rock formations. And I remember one day just being out at the edge of this one and there was a just a single bar indicating don't go beyond this. And some little kid had gone beyond it. And his dad was standing behind the bar yelling at little Timmy to come back. Not terribly effective. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad jumped over the rail and ran out to grab Timmy. And I freaked out. It's like, why are you risking your life for some other guy's kid? Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. And, you know, afterwards, after I settled down, my dad said to me, I went out there because he needed help and I was able to offer it. And I thought, wow, that's extraordinary. You saw someone in need and you took action because if not you, then who? And so I asked him to think about events that are meaningful and and what values they saw in those events. Again, in their own life, something they did or in the lives of people that they respect. And based on that, to construct a list of values that they really want to claim for themselves, for their business. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, one of the things that I've, having done lots of different sort of value work with teams and individuals, one of the things I often look for, I'd be curious to get your reaction, is I want them to find stories where living their value has cost them, <laughs> you know, in, you know, money, time, relationship, you're right. Because I want to, I want to see evidence that, that this value isn't important enough. They're willing to kind of suffer a little bit or they're willing to kind of take a short term, at least a short term loss for yeah. a longer term game of living it. I'm curious how you've seen that play out in the work that you've done. I think that's a, a really important thing that, you know, people try to think of a polite way to say this and I can't. Um, so I'll just say it. Yeah. You know, we have an aversion to anything that implies suffering or sacrifice. Yeah. And I find that really sad. Like 
it's part of the life experience. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's part of it that there should be some sacrifice involved because to hold one's values, at least to me, necessarily means that there's a cost. Yeah. You know, there's a risk at very least entailed. I think back to the story of my dad, there was a risk yeah, entailed exactly. in him stepping out on a gravelly precipice a thousand feet above the ground. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I think that's, a, that's an excellent strategy in terms of asking people about the, the sacrifice that goes in with staying true to one's values. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really, really living it. In terms of as you've worked with folks and they've kind of successfully kind of made the transition, they're now, you know, they've given up the right kind of control. They've got the right systems in place. They're, they're more effective as a leader. Their company is growing. What are some of the things that as they reflect back on the process that you've noticed in terms of, you know, things they were surprised by or things they wish they would have done sooner or anything in terms of, you know, once you get to the other side, that typically happens or that typically kind of changes for you or as you look back, becomes obvious. I think one of the things that's most surprising is that those emerging leaders really rose to the, uh, the challenge and took advantage of the opportunity that was presented them. And yeah. that that tends to be the biggest one that all of a sudden I, I worked with one company in which um, we were we were talking about one gentleman who they were considering letting go. And yeah. they just they just couldn't see like he, that he would accomplish anything. And my coaching was, what if we took the completely opposite tact and instead of continuing to cut back on things, actually put him in charge and gave him a significant set of responsibilities mm-hmm. with him knowing that he would have to perform. Yep. He's now director of finance for that company. Yeah. And he needed that challenge to rise to. He needed to be believed in. He needed something that he could sink his teeth into. And he wanted to demonstrate that he was capable of doing that. I think that's one of the biggest things. I think the second thing is that process of letting go becomes so freeing. Yeah. And to actually, one woman said to me, I forgot how much I love that process of creation. I forgot how much I love just standing at the whiteboard and sketching out where we could go and what we could do and how we could serve people because I was so busy trying to pick out, you know, the blue folder or the green folder Mm -hmm. and letting go of that trivia and being able to just focus on the future is an utterly freeing experience for most of these folks. Yeah, yeah. And the, the one I love is when when they realize that someone came up with a better way. <laughs> it's like, oh wow, <laughs> they can actually do it better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Oh, uh, right. That's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Sure. Uh, my website, mosesian.com. It's like Moses with an I A N dot com. And on the homepage, if um, you're so inclined, there's a a button you can click, get a, uh, a free audio copy of my book called The Power of Promise, How to Win and Keep Customers by Telling the Truth About Your Brand. And attached to that are five free videos that relate to each of the five chapters in the book, understanding brand, declaring your own, mapping your customer experience journey, training your team, and delivering on the promise of your brand. Great. I will make sure that the links are in the show notes so people can click through. Perfect get that information. Ken, thank you so much for taking time today. I love talking with people who work with leaders. There's so much insight, good work, and I think it's really how we're going to deal with all the things that are challenging us as a, as a world right now. Uh, you know, Leadership is, is really going to be instrumental in that. So I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Bruce. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, 
download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.